0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Ruan McCormack, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. In 2013, an outbreak of the Ebola virus was reported in Guinea, in West Africa. It spread rapidly across the region and would become the most widespread Ebola outbreak since the virus was discovered. It took more than a year and a half for the region to be declared Ebola-free, And by that time, more than 11,000 people, most of them in Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea, had lost their lives. Today, my guest is Sinead Walsh, a diplomat who served as Ireland's ambassador to Sierra Leone at the height of the crisis, as governments, the World Health Organization and NGOs struggled to bring it under control. Getting to zero... The book Walsh has co-written with Oliver Johnson, a British doctor who ran an Ebola isolation unit in Freetown, the capital of Sierra Leone, is a powerful account of that struggle. The authors are frank about the many failures that hindered the response to the emergency. That began with an institutional reluctance to face up to the depth of the crisis for political reasons. In our conversation, Sinead describes the time she attended a meeting with a senior WHO official hoping he would counter the Sierra Leonean government's position that the outbreak was under control.
1: And he actually said, uh, you know, it's not true what people are saying. You know, this virus is under control and the government's doing all the right things. And I was lit. I was just speechless. I was just sitting there going, you know, I just can't believe that given what he must have seen, that this is what he's saying.
0: And Sinead talks about the many survivors left behind and about the lasting impact on Sierra Leone. She describes meeting a 16-year-old girl who, along with her grandmother, was one of only two members of her family to survive. She was recovering from Ebola, suffering from medical problems, had dropped out of school and isolated in a rural village, faced an uncertain future.
1: We had all been kind of clapping ourselves in the back and, and, uh, you know, we'd all worked so hard. Ebola's now over. And it was just a real wake-up call for me that, um, you know, it's a real luxury, you know, for us as sort of these Western you know, aid workers or diplomats or whatever, you know, we, we can move on, uh, um, but you know, she, she, it will never be over for her.
0: Hundreds of reports have been written on the West African Ebola outbreak, but none has been as lucid, insightful and unsparing as this book. Here's Sinead Walsh. Sinead, we should explain firstly how you found yourself in Sierra Leone in 2014. You were Ireland's ambassador to the country and you'd been there for a couple of years by that point, isn't that right?
1: That's right, yeah. I went to Sierra Leone in 2011 to head up our, our Irish uh, mission there, which which later then became uh, upgraded to an embassy. Um, and we we would have had, I suppose, like a lot of the Irish embassies in Africa, we would have had a very significant Irish aid uh, component, and that was my kind of background. I used to work for Concern uh, and and other NGOs. So I would have sort of come into Department of Foreign Affairs as a what we call a development specialist, and then you know, kind of uh, also started working on the diplomatic side. Uh, actually, really only when I got to Sierra Leone, I'd never done any any sort of diplomacy before.
0: And it was a small mission, so you were all very hands on, is that right?
1: Very hands on, yeah. It was it was very small, you know, as you as you might imagine, Sierra Leone isn't the easiest place. So you would be plagued by, you know, you know there's just one printer, it never works, you know, you can never get anybody who knows how to fix it, you know, you can never, you know, there's always problems with our water supply, like things that maybe you don't imagine ambassadors are dealing with in other countries, and they probably aren't, I hope they aren't. <laughs> but in Sierra Leone, you know, everybody was sort of uh, pitching in and, and you know, driving the cars and and trying to trying to fix the printer and and, (laughs) unsuccessfully and things like that. So it was it was a very hands on place.
0: What sort of country was Sierra Leone in early 2014? You mentioned that it was, I think, the eighth poorest country in the world. Mm -hmm. The legacy of the long running civil war cast a long Shadow. Mm. Um, But at the same time, you describe a place with a sense of hope, a sense that it Mm. was it was it was rising from that experience. Um, And it was a place you were very fond of the people. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, I mean, Sierra Leoneans are, are really extraordinary. And, and, you know, if you look at what people have gone through and you just you just don't imagine, uh, I mean, one of the things, so the war went on for 11 years, so more or less the 90s. Um, and, you know, the, the peace agreement actually, um, it didn't really put, it only, it only put very, very few people in jail. So, so Sierra Leoneans would be living alongside people and and have neighbours and, and run into people in the shops who maybe had attacked them during the war. And somehow they managed to sort of get through all this. And, and uh, you know, it's not maybe uh, so foreign to us, uh, um, you know, thinking about, um, you know, some of what's happening in the north and some of what people have to, to live with. Uh, a day to day, the war was over in 2002. So by 2014, you know certainly you would have, you know, felt as though the country was moving in the right direction. But the problem was they were being undermined by a lot of things like corruption, um, and then you know just huge gaps in capacity because a lot of the educated Sierra Leoneans left during the war, and and you know, understandably a lot of them never came back and, and um you know so so in twenty fourteen you we were still looking at a country that was very, very challenged. There was big food security. I mean I, I just I just remember because I remember when I first started hearing about Ebola and I you know in Guinea as it was then and I remember thinking to myself you know, we have so much else going on in this country just you know, give one break to this country, let it not come here. So I just remember thinking, we cannot deal with one more thing. Like, you know, at least let Sierra Leone be spared this disease, which we didn't know a whole lot about, but we kind of, we knew it was it was there in Guinea. Um, and then it, it moved to Liberia and we were just thinking, you know, maybe Sierra Leone will, will dodge
0: the bullet. Did you know much about Ebola in 2014?
1: I didn't. I... I'd heard about it because over the years, so when I worked in um, Rwanda, I worked in Rwanda um, back in the early 2000s and it was in uh, Congo. So, you know, very far away. I mean, it was the neighboring country, but it was the part of Congo, which was like, you know, really, hours and hours away. Um, so it was very distant, and you were sort of hearing like, "Oh, it's 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 a, you know, it's this disease that affects people in the remote forest, and you know, it's people hemorrhage to death, and it, it was literally like." You know, people are telling you this, and your mind is just playing this horror film. You know, and, uh,
0: and that it doesn't spread in cities. That was another and misconception. That it, yeah,
1: and and we just thought, you know, um, we we just had in our heads uh, those of us that that had sort of heard of it before around Africa. You know, this is this is the sort of deep forest uh, disease, Um and we really associated with with East Africa. You know, this hadn't come to West Africa. We didn't. Uh, We didn't have any experience of it there. Uh, It it literally never crossed our mind. I mean, we did all these risk assessments all the time, you know, like if conflict were to come back and all these things, which, you know, and we never, ever have thought to put Ebola on that list of like things that might go wrong. And then it was it was what, uh, you know, just came in and 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 everything just came to a standstill. We should explain
0: what the virus is and Mm. how it's transmitted.
1: Sure. Yeah, I think I'm glad you asked that because there's a huge amount of misunderstanding about that. So, I think the most important thing to understand about Ebola is that it's a virus that is only spread via bodily fluids. So, a lot of people think it's airborne, uh, but it's not. Uh, so, it, I mean, it can be spread very easily through bodily fluids uh, like sweat, like urine. You know, so for example, if you're a mother looking after a child. With Ebola, the child will be vomiting. The mother will be cleaning up the vomit. That is absolutely, you know, the mother is is you know very very likely to 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 get that disease. Any kind of care of the sick, and and that's precisely what kept happening is that Sierra Leoneans were looking after their family members and their friends, even a lot of the time knowing uh, that it was Ebola and they were getting uh, infected. But what it also means, and this was the real misunderstanding, it means that for internationals uh, coming in. Um, you know, uh, or for, you know, even Sierra Leone and sort of business people or whatever, if you weren't interacting with somebody, like in a close way, you know, with somebody with Ebola, you were going to be fine. And yet we had this massive panic and hysteria and we had a, a, a real... I don't know if outflux is a word, but yeah, the opposite of an <laughs> influx. Um, to to you know, once once uh, you know we had the disease a month or two, and people started sort of catching on in Sierra Leone, a huge amount of people just left the country, both internationals and sort of well-off Sierra Leoneans who had the means to to you know get to the airport and get on a plane. They left, and of course, that then had huge negative implications because we actually all needed to be fighting the disease, and. You know, a lot of the people who should be fighting the disease were then, uh, you know, had had fled the country. And then it also meant that a lot of things shut down, like a lot of businesses and so on shut down. And that actually didn't need to happen. I mean, you can fight Ebola and your your sort of, you know, economy you know, w- with protections and thermometers at the door and, and all that kind of thing, because one of the symptoms of Ebola is a very high temperature. Things could uh, continue, but we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't do that. Everything basically shut down. Um, but coming back to your question, so the, the symptoms of Ebola are the 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 really sort of common one is a very very high temperature, and so um, so that's why I said that one of the things that we all did was we put thermometers at, at the doors, you know, to try and sort of see uh, kind of who was coming in and out. Um, but the other symptoms, unfortunately, and and of course even high temperature look very, very like uh, the symptoms of other really common diseases in Sierra Leone, like malaria, uh, like typhoid. And that was one of the big problems, was that in the early days, everybody just thought, oh, I just have malaria. And and it's super common to have malaria sort of throughout one's life in in, in Sierra Leone, and it's not necessarily a huge deal, similar to typhoid. And because the symptoms were indistinguishable, you know, we were were trying to... um, you know, th- this was a huge challenge is how to figure out who actually has Ebola um, and who actually has malaria and not actually expose the people with malaria to Ebola by bringing them into the hospital and having them interacting with all these people with Ebola. So we had huge problems because we had no proper, you know, na- now they're, you know, they're looking at sort of rapid diagnostic tools specifically for Ebola, all that kind of thing. None of that was there. So we had a lot of very poorly equipped health workers trying, you know, doing their best to try and sort of figure out, you know, who had it and who didn't. And blood tests to verify that you had it could take five days. So it was really, you know, it, it was really a horrendous situation. And, and we just became overwhelmed really, really quickly. So, you know, the, the cases, the, the suspected cases uh, of Ebola, you know, it, it very soon. I mean, we, we we had our first case at the end of May and I think by July... Uh, by early July, we were we were already um, overwhelmed. The book
0: tells the story by offering these two parallel perspectives. There's yours and then there's that of your co-author, um, Oliver Johnson, who was co-running the main Ebola isolation unit in the main state hospital in Freetown. Um, what was a typical day like for you, let's say, in that summer of 2014 when the outbreak was at its peak?
1: I... I would have had a lot of, um, you know, meetings trying to get the the government to to kind of, you know, step up and say, you know, publicly, like, we have a big problem, to speak to the public about what should be done, to try and kind of pull in support from the international community. Um, And then I would have been trying to spend a lot of time on trying to get the international community kind of house in order. Um, And this was a big problem because the World Health Organization, which was supposed to sort of lead us in all of this at that time, was you know, just not, you know, essentially out to lunch. They, they didn't have the right leadership in the country. You wouldn't expect them to automatically have, you know, the right leadership in the country for an infectious disease crisis because Sierra Leone wasn't, we thought, prone to those. Um, but you would expect them to react quite quickly and send in all the, you know, the heavyweights from Geneva and so on. And that didn't happen. This came
0: as a shock to you and many others because you expected to be able to put faith in the WHO. Maybe less so in the health ministry because... Exactly. I knew the health (laughs) (laughs) health ministry. You you (laughs) had misgivings already with the health ministry. um, But the WHO, they were the people you looked to and others looked to um, as the people who knew what to do in a situation like
1: this. And in retrospect, you know, I was probably just very naive. Um, You know, I... I mean, one of the things I look back on and wonder is, you know, did I spend too much time trying to get the World Health Organization and, and the organizations that were that this was supposed to be their job to function? Because, you know, one of the other things that was happening was that, you know, sort of NGOs and so on were were trying to sort of fill in that space. Um, and, and, you know, we did support them to do that. But the problem is, The World Health Organization are the ones who have the expertise and they have the mandate and they're supposed to be there working with the government on this stuff. So I do still think that it's important not to push them aside. But ultimately, you know, to some extent that had to happen because they just they weren't ready. And the months were passing and their own staff at the clinic level were screaming at them saying, you know, we need... Chlorine. We need, uh, um, you know, gloves. We need all these things. We need a proper water supply, and they just didn't seem to really kind of internalize that. Now, eventually, to be fair, they did, but but it took it took several months, and huh? and that's a just you know that was a disgrace,
0: really. How much of that was down to politics? Because they WHO wants to maintain good relations with the host government, yeah. and you both argue in the book that this prevented them from sounding the alarm early on.
1: Yeah, but again, I think they need to ask themselves. And to be fair, I think they have now (laughs)
0: reflected on
1: these things. But, you know, they weren't doing Sierra Leone any favours by kind of going along with the narrative that we had in the early days that things were under control. Um, I remember sitting in a meeting in in the Ministry of Finance, which was where we had a lot of our kind of big general meetings. And, you know, the Deputy uh, Director General at that time, Keiji Fukuda from WHO, came into the meeting and I was thrilled because we weren't expecting him. We knew that he had gone to see some of the clinics and I had just been to some of those clinics and I knew that it was just unspeakably catastrophic in these clinics and this was going to be great. He was going to come into the meeting and he was really going to say that and all the ministers were there. And he actually said, uh, you know, it's not true what people are saying, you know, this virus is is uh, under control and the government's doing all the right things. And I was lit. I was just speechless. I was just sitting there going, is this, you know, is this, a, you know, some sort of like a candid camera? You know, like, I, this is not, you know, I just can't believe that given what he must have seen, that this is what he's saying. But then later, I suppose, and, and writing the book as well, when you you learn about more things that you didn't know at the time, it, it comes back to that point where that was, had been sort of the agreement at the time, was that the World Health Organization was going to sort of go along you know, with this line, that you know, things weren't as bad and, you know. In fairness as well, the government didn't want to create panic. But actually, when you don't do enough and you don't acknowledge how bad a situation is, you, you end up creating panic and a lot more people die. So, you know, I think um, you know, that, that there's really no defending, and to be fair to World Health Organization, they don't try to defend that. They have, you know, they have said, you know, they messed up. And what we're seeing nowadays with them in the Congo, uh, what they're doing on the current Ebola outbreak in the Congo, you know, I have to be fair to them, is 180 degrees from what we saw in Sierra Leone. And it's all the stuff we, we said they weren't doing in Sierra Leone. They're now doing strong leadership quick resources all that kind of thing um but um but but yeah it it's they were um they were they were very surreal they were very surreal days and and I was I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day and I was saying you know that summer of 2014 it's like you felt like you were in a movie but you didn't know the ending like you know the ending was still very much up for grabs. And we were told in August of, of uh, 2014 that, you know, the CDC came out and said, yes, you know, in the next six months, um, you know, CDC. We, yeah, the, the, the U.S. Uh, Centers for Disease Control. So really the two big authorities in the world on, on Ebola are um, the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control from the U.S., uh, and they came out and, you know, they basically said, you know, in the next six months, you know, 10% of, of you know, the population of these countries could could uh, could die of Ebola. You know, it, it was one of those things, it just kept going on and on. Like we kept thinking, I kept thinking, again, so naively that there was some sort of cavalry, there was some sort of global cavalry that come in in these kind of situations and that those of us who were there at the time just had to sort of hold the fort and they would come, you know, and we were you know, very unqualified, you know, you know, running around like the Irish embassy, we ended up running a, a fleet management program for ambulances. There was a thousand, ve- there was a thousand sort of ambulances ultimately in the response and burial vehicles all over the country. And we said, yeah, yeah, you know, we were asked to coordinate it. We're like, absolutely. Before the Ebola crisis, we had three cars in the embassy. So, you know, it was a pretty, so we were doing all sorts of stuff. And, you know, to be fair, I have some, I had some extraordinary, colleagues and, and you know, I think we did some extraordinary work, but we were all completely unqualified. And we were basically just, and you know, it, as I say, holding the fort and waiting for this, you know, this big cavalry to come in. And, and it just never really came. I mean, ultimately, lots, ultimately a huge amount of support did come in. And to be fair to the British government, they did a huge amount as well. But actually, what I finally learned from that was that we didn't there there was never going to be a sort of a global group that was just going to come in and sort it all out because the complexities on the ground were so, you know, particular that those of us who understood the, the context were always going to have to remain really, really involved because sometimes the international, you know, community can come in and do more harm than good because they just impose all sorts of uh, new things. And, and we saw a lot of that as well. So actually, we never really... Sort of had that moment where we could sort of sit back and finally go on our holidays. <laughs> it just never happened um, because it, it, we just moved. So, so in the early days, my role uh, was very much around alarm raising um, and 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 trying to get the international community and the government to to really ad- acknowledge what was going on and get things done. And then when we did get, you know, I think from really sort of September, but we didn't see it maybe till October, November, that big international support came in. My role uh, and, and the role of my colleagues at the embassy became very much around trying to then help that, you know, large volume of international resources actually Help the problem, as opposed to you know, you know, lots of stuff
0: going on that wasn't relevant enough to the local needs. If you know what I mean. You describe almost having a temporary office in a hotel in in <laughs> the lobby of a hotel in Freetown, where you would sit and receive people, or, uh, <coughs> That's or right. cost people harass to, them. To, I think receive
1: har- them is a stretch. Harass them. <laughs> when could they won't persuade, buy harass, tell yeah, them what yeah. they needed to do. I used to have this list, and it was the most uh, unsystematic thing you can imagine. It was just a sort of bedraggled piece of A four paper where I would have written uh, the, um, you know, the kind of big issues that, you know, that week, uh, you know, and I would have, you know, need to talk to Roland from UNICEF about that supply chain for the protective equipment, you know, and need to talk to World Food Programme, you know, and, you know, I've, you know, people are saying that, you know, this is a disaster and the these houses aren't getting the food supplies, this kind of thing. And because all of these sort of top international responders were staying at the Radisson Hotel, a lot of the meetings were there, and so I used to just sit in the lobby and wait, you know, sort of for the for the you know for the people that I needed to harass about A, B, or C. And and of course this was well known, and so you know they would sort of see me from a distance, and there would be this sort of you know oh no like what's on the list for me today you know. Um, but I think again, this is why the sort of longevity is important because. I think it would. I think it would have been very difficult to come in in the middle of the Ebola crisis and try and play a role like that and kind of coordination slash harassment role, but because I'd already been there and I knew everybody, um, it was just a lot easier. Um, and I think you know, for me, this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we have these, you know, that we have long term presences in these countries where Ireland says we we want to help. And I don't know if you heard we're start we're opening an embassy in in, in Liberia before the end of the year, we're upgrading our current office in, in Liberia, which which I was also in charge of in those days, uh, to a full embassy, uh, just like we did in Sierra Leone. And I just think that's just fantastic because you can only stand by countries in times of crisis, really, in, in a sort of a in the best possible way if you were there before the crisis started and if critically you will be there when the crisis ends because a lot of people would have come in for the Ebola crisis and then flown out. And, you know, Sierra Leone was, was no no better off, uh, as you can imagine. I mean, it was only worse off. It started off as the eighth poorest country in the world. It only got poorer and, and, and more troubled and, and lost a lot of good good people and children lost a year of education, 1.8 million children. Uh, So, of course, Sierra Leone needs even more support uh, and and Liberia needs even more support uh, after the crisis is over.
0: Both you and Oliver in the book are very open about the ethical dilemmas you faced and maybe never quite resolved in your own minds even. So he describes... um, you know, that feeling that he was pushing the moral boundaries by people keeping patients locked up. Um, You suggest that Westerners were much better looked after because as soon as Westerners fell ill, they were flown out of the country. Um, There's a strong sense in the book that, you know, to put it simply, that Sierra Leoneans didn't get sufficiently good care.
1: Yeah, yeah. We we had an almost 100% survival rate of expatriates who were inevitably flown out of these countries when they caught Ebola. Um, there's, there's, you know, I think there was one, you know, a Spanish priest who was 75 years old, who died, but had also maybe been diagnosed quite late. It was in the early days or whatever. But for the most part, um, you know, expatriates were put on the next plane, uh, well, often sort of special, specially kitted out planes, I should say, um, and, and you know, you, you had a situation where, you know, you know you had like 50 staff in a hospital in Geneva looking after one Ebola patient. Now, I mean, you know, the notion of, of 50 health workers, um, you know, we, we had, you know, thousands of Sierra Leoneans going through, you know, health centers with maybe, you know, four nurses and, you know, maybe one doctor, you know. Um, so... It's, it's a huge inequality and I think where it really became very um, obvious, I suppose, was when um, Dr. Khan died.
0: This is another life lost to Ebola, one of a growing number claimed by this deadly virus. And now the man in charge of the campaign to stop it in Sierra Leone has himself succumbed to it. Sheikh Humar Khan was praised as a national hero for his efforts to contain Ebola.
1: So, so Sheikh Umar Khan was uh, Sierra Leone's only um, virologist. So, really, the only Sierra Leonean who had the technical qualifications to deal with Ebola, and he was he was working in Sierra Leone at the time. And you know, I think we all put huge faith in him and hope in 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 him, sort of leading the you know on the technical side, kind of you know leading us into to um, to what to do. Um and he he caught Ebola in, in July of of twenty fourteen, about two months after the first case. The only guy in the country who knows all the technical details, if he gets it, what hope do any of the rest of us have of avoiding it? He you gets know? it and dies. He gets it and dies. And when he died, he was the he he he, he had he was in an in a Medicine sans frontier clinic. And there were two doses of an experimental vaccine called ZMAP. Sorry, an experimental treatment called uh, ZMAP. And the decision was made not to give it to him partly because people thought, well, the backlash could be so huge if he were given this treatment and if he died people might think, oh, the treatment killed him, and then people might be really angry, and then it might be even harder to sort of, you know, bring Sierra Leoneans into clinics and give them sort of faith in the the system. Um, So there was all these sort of discussions, and and eventually the decision was made. I think, you know, a lot of us would have liked it to have been made the other way, but the decision was made not to give him that uh, treatment, and he subsequently died. And then literally you know a couple of days later an American doctor in Liberia was given one of those same two uh, uh, vaccines that had been in the fridge uh, and survived and and no no questions were asked about that I mean there was no kind of you know there was no dilemma <clears throat> expressed so um, you know that that I think for us was one of the starkest um, you know kind of moments and obviously we you know we want the american doctor you know we we want everybody to 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 survive and we want everybody to be given the treatment but um but dr khan you know that that decision was made and and you know and there's some understandable reasons behind it but it was a huge tragedy and i think had a huge a hugely negative psychological impact on the population because it was very common after dr khan died you know for people to be fatalistic and say look Dr. Khan can't protect himself. You know, who are we? You know, so it's just one of those things, you know, it's like the war. You don't have any control over it. Whereas we were trying to tell people the exact opposite. You can avoid this. You can, you know, try to protect yourself You know, from Ebola, or at least if you get it, if you come to the, the treatment centre right away, you know, you can have some sort of chance of survival. So that was a harder message, I think, after Dr Khan died.
0: The problem, however, as you saw it, was that one of the key parts of the government, the official response was quarantine, this policy of quarantine, yeah. Yeah. Um, which meant that if you had the, the virus or a member of your family had the virus, you yeah. were restricted to your home. Um, and you argue strongly in the book, and so does Oliver, that this was a mistake um, because it it gave people an incentive to hide and to flee.
1: Yeah, it you know there, apparently there's I I only kind of learned this uh working on the book apparently there's there's a quite a long kind of medical history of of quarantine that that does also relate very much to you know how a society tries to keep away you know people that you know it tried to keep certain people away from the rest of the people um and you know I think quarantine was exactly that it, it wasn't just you know putting people in these kind of special you know houses um you know because they they might be infected uh it was also a sort of a mental process of you know some of us are you know kind of fine and others are are you know potentially infectious and their vectors and you know and 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 I think you know one of the, it, it wasn't just People who were quarantined in houses. There were whole districts that were quarantined. Freetown, obviously not being one of them, where all the elites lived and all the politicians lived. But a lot of the at one point half of the country was was actually quarantined. So that the attempt was to try and sort of protect places like Freetown, um, you know, which was which was completely futile. Um, but in terms of household quarantine, it it was. Um, and actually, that the head of the Center for Disease Control uh, during Ebola, a guy called Tom Frieden. I mean, he, you know, he he says that that he thinks, you know, we we added another six months to the crisis in Sierra Leone by by that uh, policy. Um, well, and maybe just to
0: explain what what was the problem in your eyes with with quarantine.
1: So, so basically, what what they did was they put people in a, in a sort of a house. So if you if your brother or sister had you know, been infected with Ebola and gone to a treatment center or your mother and father, whatever, anybody in your household, you and everybody else in your household who didn't have Ebola at that moment were all put together in a separate house for 21 days. And the theory of this was that, you know, after 21 days, if you had symptoms of Ebola, you know, they were going to show. And in the meantime, you you who were at high risk were being kept away from other people. Um, And I mean, it was just a disaster for so many reasons. One reason being that obviously if you're in that household, uh, you feel as though you've been entirely abandoned by you know, your community, by your country, by your government, by the medical community, because you're being left in a house with all these risky people. So obviously your risk is increasing. And a lot of times for a lot of the response... There wasn't enough, you know, there weren't proper provisions for water, for different things. So people in those houses were actually, um, you know, very vulnerable to, to, to sort of catching it from each other. And the psychological weight of knowing that, I mean, it's just really unthinkable. But also it was implemented incredibly badly. So sometimes people could just pay the security guard at the door you know, to let, them, to, to let them leave. And so then you'd have people who really you want them to be in the clinic getting a test for whether or not they're positive, but instead you have them in this house and very likely you have them, you know, also just paying to get out and, and, and wandering around. So, so you keep people away from the health system and, the, you know, the, the proper, uh, you know, um, procedure uh, of testing and all of that. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I remember Medicines on Frontier... Very early on, telling me this is going to be a disaster, um, and you know, I, I then sort of said to them, "Okay, I'm going to try to, you know, to to raise this at the policy level, which I did, and any umpteenth number of times to to absolutely no effect, because again, for the I think for the government, it was also a kind of a it was a sort of a psychological uh, strategy to, you know, that it was them and us, you know, let's let's keep those people away from us. Um, and, uh, and and we were never, we were able to get it improved by the end to have proper facilities, you know, so that people wouldn't have to maybe share toilets with other people who might be infected and all that kind of thing. But we were never able to get rid of the whole thing.
0: Sinead, I wonder, could I ask you to read a, an extract from the book? Um, this is a particularly haunting account of a family in Freetown who were hit with the virus with um, devastating results.
1: So this extract is called um, Dying Alone. The epidemic was not waiting around for us to get our houses in order, and every day brought more horrendous stories. These stories came from all over the place. Field visits, coordination meetings, phone calls from an NGO, WhatsApp groups. I had stopped watching television, having previously been in the habit of switching on the news late at night when I got home from meetings and was getting ready for bed. After Ebola started, though, some of the stories were so disturbing I wouldn't be able to sleep for hours. I would lie there feeling guilty about the huge cleavage between what we were trying to do and the suffering that the people were going through. I had the same feeling after I got a call in the car one day about a situation that shook me to my core. The parents of a family in Freetown got sick with Ebola and died, leaving five children in the house. The house was quarantined, and the children were left alone there for a week. The 15-year-old girl, who was, in effect, the head of the household, started having symptoms. To protect her siblings, she quarantined herself on the small balcony of the house and eventually died there alone. I couldn't get the image of this girl out of my head. The loneliness she must have felt. Five months into the epidemic in Sierra Leone, and this is where we were this is all we could manage to do for these children.
0: You also write very affectingly about the survivors. So in Sierra Leone alone, almost 4000 people died, but there were also 4000 people who had the virus and and survived. Mm. And many of them had dropped out of school, had lost their jobs. And you say, even though by You know, early 2015, the virus was under control um, and eventually contained completely. The legacy of the virus was going to live on for a very long time.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's sort of two. You know, there's people who directly survived the Ebola um, crisis, and then there's the Sierra Leonean population as a whole, particularly the sort of vast majority of the population who were very poor to start off with, and you know and and they were also you know they also had a had had a lot of after effects. Um, but just starting with the the actual um survivors of of the disease because they you know they really had had huge and have absolutely huge challenges. Um, you know, on the one hand, most of them have physical um, symptoms, so these kind of vary in severity, but um, eye problems are really, really common, and if they're not treated, survivors will become blind. Um, there is a lot of um, joint um, pain and weakness. Um, some people have, um, you know, problems with their ears. So there's, there's, there's real kind of um, ongoing physical problems that, you know, because Ebola is so poorly understood still... Um, that, you know, everybody's sort of trying to to figure out how to to help. And and this is in the context of a health system, which is still, you know, which is still very weak. Um, but then also, as you can probably imagine, the mental, mental health impacts on survivors. Um, a lot of times survivors will have lost a lot of other um, family members. Um, a lot of times survivors, because of the way in which the virus tends to kill very young people and very old and young people, middle-aged people and old people, but the people who tend to survive are often kind of, you know, adolescents and, and young people and so on um, and so then they're dealing with maybe having lost their parents, some of them maybe have lost their, their babies and so on and so forth so the mental health impact of that is something that, you know, I just, I don't think any anybody was sort of prepared for, I mean it's just it's just so Vast. Then, of course, you have issues around, um, you know, people who had jobs, but then they lost their jobs because they were in the treatment center for a month. Um, you know, and then you know maybe there's still some stigma around. That was the person who got Ebola, and what if they get it again? Because there is, again, we don't understand this very well, but there is a potential for a survivor. Particularly, we know that survivor males um, can pass on the virus through, you know, through sexual intercourse, basically, and there's, you know, possibilities, you know, can women then pass it on through breast milk? There's a lot of questions that we don't know the answer to, but a lot of these things make it more likely that survivors will be stigmatized, you know, in the future, sort of within their society. So they might be jobless, have all these or, or have, have left school because schools were closed for a year, so a lot of people dropped out of school. Um, and, you know, and, and and I would have I met a, a you know, a, a young girl who who really personified so much of this for me and was a real, you know, sort of wake up call for me and, and this was this woman was called a satu um Kamara um and and she was 14 she was in a village in northern Sierra Leone and she was one of only two survivors from her family herself and her grandmother uh who who had never actually had the virus so she had had the virus and survived her grandmother hadn't gotten it and 16 people in her family uh had died you know including her her father, her, all her brothers and sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts. So, you know, I went to visit her in her village. And uh, and it was such a weird experience because, you know, Sierra Leoneans are very jovial. They're very, um, you know, kind of exuberant and loud. And, and usually when you go to a village, you know, you're in your, your white car from the Irish Embassy and all the kids are running around the car and, you know, everybody's really excited to, to see you and, 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 you know, all this kind of thing. And and this was really the only you know experience I had where we showed up at a village. There was nobody. There was no. There were no children because all the people in that part of the village uh, had died. So it was just really quiet, really eerie. Um, and then you know, speaking to to Isatu, then uh, she was also a very very quiet, very reserved because obviously, as you can imagine, she's massively traumatized by all of this and uh, and really. It was just wasn't clear what what she was going to do next. You know, she she didn't. She had you know ongoing medical problems. She tried to go back to school. She just couldn't do it. They had very little money. Their, her grandmother made soap and and sold soap, and that was to, to support both of them. But you know that doesn't necessarily go very far. And and really, I just you know I just came away from from that village just saying you know we had. We had all been kind of clapping ourselves in the back and, and uh, you know, we'd all worked so hard, Ebola's now over. And it was just a real wake up call for me that um, you know, it's a real luxury, you know, for us as sort of these western, you know, aid workers or diplomats or whatever. You know, we we can move on, uh um, but you know, she, she it will never be over for her. So and then you you know, you just think of, of uh um I think one of the reasons it was particularly um Sort of um, harrowing um, experience uh, from my perspective was because she was exactly the same age as my oldest nephew here in in Dublin, and you know, I I see you know he he you know that the issues he has to deal with about you know this I don't know new Xbox and somebody has this Xbox and this you know like these are, and this is exactly this is what teenagers should be dealing with. These are the issues. Is my Kids in school have this and I only have this one and, you know, so-and-so beat me at uh, basketball or whatever the case may be, you know, and, and that's precisely how it should be. And that's, that's what we should be working for, is that 14-year-olds are dealing with those kinds of issues um, and not the kinds of issues that, that Isatou was dealing
0: with. You mentioned that in May, June 2014, you expected the cavalry to arrive and it didn't. It eventually did arrive, but much later in 2014, towards the end of the year, um, so, in the form of a UN mission, mm. the British Army, um, Barack Obama took a very prominent role in trying to muster international funds and support. Um, why did that happen? What was the tipping point?
1: Well, I, w- I will do, I will slightly slightly you know disagree in the sense that a huge amount of international support did arrive, but what I had seen of what I had thought of as the cavalry, like people who were just going to come in. And again, this is just my own naivety, you know, and and, uh, and sort things out. Um, that never happened, you know. So, yes, we had a huge amount of international support, but then that was also very complicated and there were a lot of problems with it. And, it, you know, it's hugely welcome, and, and particularly the British support in Sierra Leone, um you know was absolutely key to turning around you know the situation, but you know there were a lot of problems with that too and so in what in my head, the cavalry that was in my head that that one never arrived but again maybe maybe I never should have expected that one but just coming back to to your question about the um, the tipping point i i mean it's it's hard to know, but I think. I think there were various things that contributed to why the international support finally came, but unfortunately, I think a big part of it was the the threat to the Western world. So I, I definitely think, and and you know, governments the, the exaggerated were threat? the the exaggerated threat. Yes, I think it was often exaggerated, particularly in in the media. Um, but, but basically the notion, you know, so, so where this really hit home for us was when Ebola came to Nigeria. So we we were in, you know, absolute desperate straits in, in July uh, of 2014 in Sierra Leone, and we had so few resources. And then Ebola came to Nigeria, which has, you know, much more sort of international kind of trade and back and forth and direct flights to the UK and all this kind of thing. And we saw a far, far stronger international response to that, uh, to the Nigeria outbreak than we had ever seen for Sierra Leone, even though the situation in Sierra Leone was so much worse uh, than the situation in Nigeria. So, you know, that did, that did make us a bit cynical and think, well, is this actually about, about the West? But I, th- I think it's complicated because I do think that there was also, you know, there were also sort of good intentions. There were people like, you know, Samantha Power w- was very prominent in this uh, within Barack Obama's uh, administration, you know, who who wanted an Ebola response for the sake of Sierra Leoneans and Liberians and Guineans. You know, not everybody was just thinking, oh, how would this, you know, how would this potentially affect us if somebody gets on a plane and, uh, you know, and 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 if this spreads um, in in our country. The, the reason though that, that 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 was an exaggerated threat is because actually our health systems are able to deal with with these sorts of threats. So, so it was never really likely to be that much of an issue, but, um, but there was a lot of hysteria around it. So, so so yes, that was one part of it. But I also think there was genuine kind of, you know, humanitarian that, that came into play as well. Um, and, you know, really, I think, you know, one of the key moments was, was Joanne Liu, who was the president of MSF at the time, you know, standing up in, in, in the UN in New York and saying... You know, we're calling for for the military. I mean, that that's not something that MSF has ever done before. Um, and but they just thought things are so desperate that you needed, you know, sort of hundreds and you know, ideally thousands of medical workers from, you know, militaries in 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 sort of Britain and the US and so on to all deploy. Um, and in a way. It happened and in a way it didn't. I mean, you had, a, you know, big deployments by the US and UK military, but they didn't want to treat patients for the most part. They, they, You know, the military were, in in most cases, banned from actually having any direct interaction with patients because, again, the concern was that people from the military would then catch Ebola. And, you know, it's something that Oliver talks about a lot, I suppose, as as a British person, you know, that you sort of, you always think the military is going to take more risks than you as a civilian and and not less.
0: Um, they are actually very cautious.
1: Very, 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 very cautious, yeah.
0: Mm. It's a remarkable book. And one of the most striking and, and impressive things about it is your willingness and Oliver's willingness to interrogate your own decisions, your own actions. You, meaning yourselves, but also the international community, the network of diplomats and officials and NGO workers and so on who were in Freetown in that year. Um, so you, you think aloud about whether the international or the, the response in general dehumanized people, whether you work closely enough with communities. Um, and you constantly ask what would we have done differently? If you were back in Freetown now and it was May 2014, what would you tell yourself?
1: God, I mean I one of the one of the <laughs> one of the most difficult parts about writing the book was was, was actually constantly replaying, you know, sort of what had happened and and sort of having all these ideas about what I would have done differently, what I would have loved to have done differently. Um, It's tough because you don't know if you would actually, you know, do the stuff differently that you think you would. But I I think I would have been even more of a pain and a sort of... um, even more disruptive, I think. I say that because a lot of people thought I was quite enough of a pain uh, in, in harassing them and so on and so forth. Um, but in retrospect, I, I think um, it would have been good to do even more of that. And, and um, you know, in the very early days, I, I think one of the things that 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 I was able to do a bit and that, you know, I think Irish people are maybe kind of relatively good at doing is sort of trying to pass messages from the ground to uh, the policy level uh, because we generally have quite good, you know, relationships with, you know, the NGOs. So we would have obviously had the likes of, of Concern and there or whatever and, and other NGOs. And I would have been, you know, I would have spent a lot of time speaking to them and then trying to, to sort of relay what they were saying to higher levels. And and I I would really have liked to have have done sort of more of that because I think when you're when you have as as a sort of a diplomat and so on or you know kind of a, sort of a senior person in these kind of situations I think when you can talk directly about you know things that you've seen with your own eyes I think it's very powerful in the policy circles because so few people. You know, most people had no interest in go to the clinics and so on. So, I remember one particular visit in in July when I went to Kenema Hospital, and and in, in, in retrospect, in writing the book, I realized how much of my sort of you know, the sort of policy recommendations and maybe the way in which I could have influence actually were stemming from having made that particular visit at that very pivotal time. So, I think um, I think if this were to happen to 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 me again. And indeed it might, because Congo is uh is having an Ebola outbreak, not in that far from the border of South Sudan, where I'm just about to go, and and, and, and South Sudan is um is actually currently working on Ebola preparedness. Um, but I think if this were to happen to me again, I would I would, I suppose, you know, sort of try to take this kind of, you know, no regrets approach, just kind of just be really annoying and harass people and you know know that well you can just apologize when it's all over if you've overreacted but just
0: overreact. Do you think finally that the world has learned the lessons of the outbreak in 2014?
1: Um, I think s- I think some lessons have been learned and some lessons definitively don't seem to have been learned at all. Um, w- I'm very encouraged by the very different World Health Organization that we see now in the outbreak in the Congo and and in fact the last outbreak in the Congo as well, um, you know much stronger leadership, you know much quicker, um, you know so 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 that you know that is definitely positive. Um, what um, what I worry about more is that you know, there's a tendency for us to fight the last war, right? So so that we all focus a lot on, okay, what about the next Ebola outbreak? And then for the next few Ebola outbreaks, we'll see, you know, I think what we're seeing, which is, you know, people trying to to, to do the opposite of what they did in West Africa in 2014. So that's good and everything. But there's, there's you know, a whole series of other, um, you know, health crises going on every day in countries like uh, Sierra Leone. And if we end up having this, you know really nice system for detecting Ebola, but you know we still have just you know tens of thousands of people, you know every year dying of of uh, um you know uh, malaria or or TB and so on, then you know, what's the point of that? And what we haven't seen is any kind of you know really serious reformulation of of how the health system works and how the health system should work in the long term. So there's definitely been some improvements, both in in terms of Sierra Leone and then in terms of how international uh, partners support countries like Sierra Leone. So we don't seem to have seen that kind of total mindset shift that would um, really um, strengthen the health system in a kind of a comprehensive way. Uh, but we have, you know, we have seen some sort of discrete initiatives on on getting better at dealing with Ebola the next time. And that's the other point is that, you know, the next big crisis to to hit Sierra Leone is probably not going to be Ebola. It's probably going to be something else. And so we need to look at, at helping countries like this that, that are vulnerable to crises to be ready for kind of anything that comes along. Because as I said to you, I mean, you know, we had a risk management matrix in the Irish embassy. We thought we had like analysed everything that could happen. We had absolutely 100% not even thought about including Ebola. It had never crossed our minds and everybody was the same. And so we need to get better at then how do we, how, how do we kind of have that flexibility and adaptability so that we can react to anything? Because it probably won't be Ebola. It'll probably be something else.
0: The book is called Getting to Zero. It's written by Sinead Walsh and Oliver Johnson, and it's published by Zed Books. Sinead, thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan.